Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast. I'm your host, Sean Mader. Thanks for being with us. And before we jump in, I'd like to wish you and your loved ones, hope that you're safe and in good health. There's no mystery that our entire lives, businesses, and even our vision for the future has been disrupted radically in the last couple months. And we're going to take the conversation of this podcast in a different direction because I think there's a particular opportunity in all of this disruption to be more candid and to address some things that we haven't been addressing in the past that are going to be crucial if we are to come out of this COVID crisis, better individuals, better business people, and better leaders. And there's been a bit of a dirty secret in the world of corporate innovation, startup world innovation, and namely it's that 70% of innovation initiatives fail. And the entire structuring of how this has been taking place has been flawed. And because we are all born into some kind of paradigm where that's just how it's done, I know practitioners and innovation leaders like myself, have been very hesitant to voice some of our concerns to our clientele because it wasn't our place. So the methodologies of innovation, design thinking, all these things, they actually do work. But what we're facing now is a lot of dysfunction that has been unaddressed in the past. And now a lot of these uh, predictions have been accelerated where we're having organizations that have 80% C-suite burnout, You've got 70% of employees unengaged and the ability for companies to attract and retain millennial talent is abysmal. So as people who oftentimes have come from a diverse set of sectors who come into the innovation space, we've been reticent to actually voice that unless there are some fundamental changes in how current average businesses function and how their leadership functions, it's going to be relatively hard for them to have any meaningful innovation. And even now more than ever, it's going to be ever more difficult to move forward trying to use some of the dysfunction of the past as a template. So I'm very excited to have our guest on. Her name's Sonia Krescevic. And for many years, she was a very successful leader at Pearson and really celebrated for Uh, her work in the innovation space. And about five years ago, her life took a very different turn where she left the corporate world and went on a more of a personal healing journey. And she's here to talk about what she learned from that and what's really going to be needed to move forward in this time of disruption. We're going to shift the conversation away from the specific tactics and strategies of innovation and speak more to what's needed at a personal level from leadership in order to be the kind of organization that can move forward in a resilient, flexible, and innovative way. So the first starting point we have is that there's going to be an impulse to want to return to normal. And that's going to be impossible. We're not going to be able to go back. And that doesn't really mean that we can see a new way forward. So Sonia, thank you for being here. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts on how it is that we're going to move forward from this crisis. Um, 
I think you're right. I don't think there is going back to normal. I think what we used to call normal wasn't that normal for, for many of us, whether we were in corporate world or, you know, in startup world, trying to deal with uncertainty that we were all facing, you know, from digital disruption that's been happening for the last many years. That was really challenging for many established traditional companies because it was really pushing them into redesigning their business model, looking into different ways of working to, you know, what's, what has been happening in our societies from, you know, climate urgency to huge inequality that we are facing in the world. And, you know, I, I like to look at the problem we are facing now with Corona as, as a mirror, right? You know, things that we could have happily, maybe in some case, uh, ignored two, three months ago are kind of not ignorable anymore. You know, we have unemployment going through the roof in US, in UK as well. I just read in our most recent article in UK press today that, you know, majority of people in UK run out of money in six months. So, you know, when you frame the problem and you understand how big it is, you know that it goes beyond just a pandemic or just a virus and that, you know, we need to start looking deeper into what hasn't been working in our organizations, in our communities, in our societies and, and find courage to have these open conversations and find solutions to, you know, the problems we have been facing. Yeah. In terms of corporate world, especially, and, you know, um, you know as well as I do, there's been a lot of denial, right? You know, I've been in so many board meetings where executives say, you know, this digital thing, it's not really going to happen. You're going to go back to, you know, selling books or selling whatever the product is. And then Corona comes and all of a sudden, you know, everyone is working from home. Everyone is now trying overnight to shift a model. If you have kids, kids are all of a sudden working from home. And if your school hasn't been set up to enable that, then you're distributing paper copies. And I was on a walk earlier today in London and one of the public schools had buckets per grade outside the gates with printout materials, which tells you the community around the school where most of the kids don't have you know, laptops, computers, and where school needs to distribute printout materials. And I think it's not dissimilar from what the corporates are facing now or you know, our right. governments, right? If you are not set up to work from home, this is a huge challenge that you're trying to address. If your model, uh, you know, business model has already been outdated, which exposed now. has been for many, many years, it's definitely exposed now. You're, you're somebody who in your career was actually quite celebrated for being one of the most innovative people. You got a lot of awards for it. You, you were, uh, had all the great buzzwords around you. Um, but you kind of hit your own point with that of really second guessing this kind of uh, momentum that we've been on. So I'd be curious to hear just a little bit more about that. Well, I think this hero culture that we have been cultivating, right, for many, many years is something that I was definitely part of. You know, I used to work 17 hours a day. I used to go on holidays with my kids and bring my laptop and, you know, think, not think twice before answering emails by the pool. And I think that type of culture where we are constantly working, constantly chasing something without really thinking whether we are present, whether what we are doing is actually making a difference, has to stop, right? I, I, I remember working not just insane hours, but sending emails to my team at 3 a.m. in the morning, you know, where I'm in New York, they're in London, they wake up in the morning thinking, who is this crazy person sending emails at 3 a.m.? But we set up a precedent to this is how we are supposed to work. And, you know, I've been 
since I left Pearson, I've been consulting a lot and speaking to other innovation leaders across the board in, you know, all over Europe, in US, every time I go to conference and share some of my experience, people come to me and say, all of this resonates, you know, we feel the same. To try and almost drag, you know, the dinosaur company on a journey with you requires enormous efforts and rarely you get the support beyond the lip service from you know executive team or from the leadership who don't really quite understand what's going on who feel personally threatened in many cases mm-hmm. because you know this new way of working this innovative product or you know program that you're working on if it's successful may disrupt everything that you have spent your career building and so people take that personally if you think about some of the major reasons you always hear about you know we cannot do this right in the organization whether it's you know new transformative program of work or new innovative product that you're working on or just changing ways of working it's usually the people who are in in a way a a barrier to change right it's Mm -hmm. our perception of what we know about the world that we have created that's standing in a way right we are so sad we create our own world probably very early in childhood and we only accept the confirmation of that. And so when you think about our, our path from, you know, schooling all the way to our career path, it's very narrow because we only accept things that confirm what we already know to be true. And so we obviously, you know, go towards colleagues who are in confirmation of what we think that it's true for us. We create a culture that's confirming what we already know. And so when we start to think about innovation that requires us to deal with uncertainty on a daily basis, you know, that requires creativity, that requires failure, right? You know, if if you're a scientist, if you come from the technical background for you, that's like a normal thing. But if you come from more traditional business background, failure is a dirty word that no Mm -hmm. one wants to mention. And so when you start to think about, let's run some experiments, you know, let's write some hypotheses executives are like no give me a plan give me a deadline give me benefits up front and so this is the culture that we have been cultivating for years in which people cannot fail in which projects cannot fail in which we make up numbers as we go along in order to convince someone that we are right in which even when we start to do innovation we do it in a way to again confirm what we already know so when we talk about being able to challenge some of our preconceived notions, you know, I think this is one of the things that people find inherently difficult, especially as adults. Children, super easy. Adults find it super hard. And I, I look at this example of uh, the show Dancing with the Stars. You, you take people who are actually really amazing in their own given fields, and they're highly talented, and you watch them go into the world of dance where they're just terrible in the beginning and you watch what happens if they give themselves the freedom to be with not being great at it and you give them some instruction you give them some guidance but i think universally if you talk to any of those people by the time they finish their journey on that show they were the most alive they were the most exhilarated Uh, the sense of satisfaction and aliveness that came from jumping into the unknown and and coming out the other side of it is something that we have actually have been told leaders that it's not okay to do that. You're supposed to have all the answers. You're supposed to know already and you better solve the problem. So when we speak to this broader theme of how do you start this process, it really does mean jumping into the unknown, but not solo. 
And I know you did no, the solo, you did so the solo version. <laughs> I did the solo version for, for a long time. And then I started to find other people who were doing it. And that became my lifeline for a long time. And I think gave me maybe the extra nudge or extra, you know, uh, permission that I needed. Because it is about unlearning. It's about unlearning. You know, we talked about external barriers that are standing in your way when you're trying to innovate in large organizations or even do things in your life. But, you know, when you couple that with internal barriers that you have created and you're not aware of what's possible and what's not possible, the space for creativity, for innovation or for trying anything new is really small. And what we do in this process of unlearning, we start to open that space and that space becomes bigger and bigger with every day. And we start to rediscover our sense of wonder, our sense of curiosity. We start to do things that we have never done before just because we can, you know, it's like a muscle that you need to redevelop. You had it as a child. Then you went into schooling system that did their best to destroy that for you. Thank you very much for that. And then all of a sudden on the other side, as an adult, you start to reconnect with that muscle again. And as with every muscle, if you don't invest time and energy and you start to observe and really work on it, it's not going to develop. And it's really sad for me to sometimes meet older people and hear about the regret they have for, you know, not pursuing a dream or not, you know, giving themselves a permission to try something. And I think there is so much opportunity lost. You know, each one of us brings a unique perspective on life and unique learnings that we can, you know, solve any problem really in the world if we work together. But we need to bring ourselves first to that. And we do that by exposing ourselves, by challenging ourselves, not going to our strength, but really learning how to be an amateur again and how to play. And, you know, whatever that looks like, is it dancing? Is it drawing? Is it cooking? Is it, you know, learning to do something that you have never done? You know, being okay to embarrass yourself in front of others, if that's what it takes. I remember the first time I was asked to speak about my personal journey. Oh my God, if someone asked me to, you know, strip naked in Times Square, I would have said, okay, no problem. Mm -hmm. But to actually speak in front of other people and reveal things that I now openly talk about was terrifying. And it was terrifying, not just because I'm going to share personal things, but because this voice in my head was saying, but who are you to speak about that? You are not an expert. You're not a psychiatrist. What do you know, right? You don't have a degree that proves that you know what you're talking about. Somehow, you know, all the scars that I have acquired on this journey didn't seem enough to me. I, I thought I needed a certificate. Mm -hmm. I actually called my coach and said, should I get a coaching certificate? Should I go back to school? And she said, are you crazy? Like, look what you have done. Don't you think it's enough? right? It's this idea that we have of schooling as well, that it has to be in school, that someone else needs to validate and certify that we know what we are talking about, yeah. instead of saying, well, actually, I experience me, you know, going deep, bearing my heart and soul, you know, working on undoing the damage that was done to me, healing my trauma. Doesn't that qualify me to show up in a world in a different way? Well, and, so, and I think the other thing that people experience universally, like you start to go out and speak and you might have that concern about, oh, what are people going to think about me and all those common things. But the universal reaction is people are so lit up and happy that somebody had the courage to say what we're all thinking. And I can, I can 
think I can probably speak for any employee in any company that they would be so happy and uh, uh, amazed to hear their boss say, hey guys, we're gonna take a new direction. We know that everything is up for grabs and there's a lot of uncertainty right now in COVID. It's time for us to kind of be the company we really could be and innovation and having you guys have what's really important to you here at work. I have no idea how we're gonna do that, but we gotta start somewhere, so who's in with me? I guarantee you, you would have more buy-in and more loyalty and more willingness for people to go through thick and thin with you if you as a leader said that. And I know it's just not there for a lot of people. No, and I completely agree with you. I think to get to that point where people actually want to engage with you in that conversation and trust you that you mean it and that you're not doing it just as a show and tell and to tick Mm -hmm. the box, right? So it's real. You need to open up more than that. I think you yep. need to, you know, start with a Zoom call where you don't talk about company. You don't talk about what we're going to do one day. Tell them how much you are struggling right now, how difficult it is for you to find concentration, to feel motivated, how hard it is to work while your kids are jumping up and down on you, how difficult it is to be in lockdown with your family for 62 days as much as we love them, right? How much you feel lost personally, how much this uncertainty is challenging you, that changes the conversation. To that, people can relate and say, you know what, he's for real. I can sympathize with this. I I can feel safe now to open up and say, you know what, this is really scary for me, right? Once we do that, once we connect, without titles, without, you know, what's going to happen to us one day, just in this moment, be present with each other, then we can talk about, let's do a retrospective. Let's look at back at the last few years of working together as a team. You know, what are some of the sacred cows we had that we thought, you know, we cannot challenge, you know, whether it's ways of working or our process or how we invest, how we fund, how we speak to our stakeholders, how we work, our structure, whatever it is. Let's challenge that. What have you learned now in the last couple of months working in this way? What do we think, you know, the future is holding that's actually going to be very challenging for us if we don't start to, you know, lower our expectations, if we don't change some of the things, you know, until we prepare the soil for something new to be planted, we cannot plant anything new that's actually going to succeed. And I think we all made mistake of just piling, you know, new plants every year on top of the soil that's, you know, is not ready anymore, right? And it's actually quite um, toxic with with the things we have put in. Then kind of as step three, we can start to think about, okay, now that we have created this safe space where we have emotionally connected, once we have challenged some of the existing sacred cows and decided to let go, then there is space. The space is, is started to clear up. It's bigger than, you know, just a little dot on a page. Then we can start to think about what are some ideas, you know, as a leader, you open a conversation, you say, what do you guys think? You know, what are some of the things we should be testing? Trying. Yeah, let, let's at least put it up there so we can at least start to talk about yeah, it. We don't have, exactly. we may not, it may be crazy, let's but let's just get it up there. Right. You know, I, I think I shared with you, uh, Marina Abramovich, who I am a big fan of, performance artist, uh, Mm -hmm. when she teaches her students during a week of teaching, she asks them to, you know, come up with crazy ideas and to select at the end of each day the ideas they want to take forward and things that they want to disregard. And so over a course of a week, you know, the 
basket fills up with ideas that they have disregarded. On Friday afternoon, she throws everything else apart from that basket. Those are the really, those crazy ideas that we don't believe in, that you know, we think no one is gonna listen to. Those are some of the best ideas that we always have. Those ideas that we wanna put forward right now, because they're not conditioned by what's possible, right? What's amazing about your story of, you know, people going and doing the dance and embarrassing themselves and not judging themselves is they're going beyond what they thought was possible, mm -hmm. right? Yep. This belief system that, you know, we cannot dance or I, we cannot learn to play an instrument or we cannot draw because we are not talented enough. Of course we are. It's the belief system that we cannot, that's preventing us from. If you look at some of the most successful people in the world, they don't have that belief system. They think they can do anything right? They and that's a learned it. skill that, I mean, that is, Absolutely. that is that's like, a muscle as well. you know, I happened to, there was a point a few years ago where I looked around, and I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm terrible at everything I'm doing. Uh, I started jujitsu. I started leading this big program. I was doing a whole bunch of stuff where I was a beginner at it. And the biggest realization I had is like, wow, I actually got good at not being good at stuff. And there was a certain freedom in that because I just, I discovered over time, like if I started something, it's going to be like anybody learning a guitar. It's just not going to sound great. But yeah. two, three months in, you're going to start playing some chords on your own. And two years later, you're probably going to have some little solos to put in there. And over time, it becomes part of you and natural. But I think that that fear of that first step is what stops most people from ever starting. And especially in this case yes. where people have gone before you. I mean, this is a, this, this progression on this path is well known and has been walked by many people and there's people that you know, shine flashlights on it and yeah, guide the way. Absolutely. And this is why we need that. Those people, we need the guides on this journey, right? We need people that we can relate to and we need to learn from, you know, what they have done before us, but more than anything, they can help us develop that inner confidence that we are lacking when we start the journey, right? Yeah. Because in the beginning of the journey, I remember I was listening to any healer, any coach that I would, you know, encounter as, you know, as a gospel, right? I would take notes as a good student. <laughs> yeah, I would go to a workshop. I would write everything down. And so I was learning in a traditional way. And it wasn't until, you know, I admitted that I had no clue what I was doing in my life. So, you know, I reached a level of unlearning where I could then start to learn in a very different way, which was more experiential, more listening to how my body is reacting to what you are saying, you know, observing myself as I do something, developing the self-awareness that I didn't have before. And once you start to go down that journey, then, you know, the guides become, as an external guides become less important. Of course, you need still people, you still need help, you still need community, but you start to learn that every trigger is a guide. You start to look inside much more. And I think that's the beauty of this process. If you, you listen to any of the Eastern philosophers, to any of the yogis, what they're going to tell you about this journey is it's about emptying yourself from everything you have known. It is about unlearning. It's about undoing until you admit, until you're on your knees crying and saying, I don't know. That's the moment of humility. That's the moment of, uh, you know, when you're really facing yourself, that's the moment where everything starts. And so it's a really different journey from the journey we have been on before that. That's yeah. been preconditioned by, you have to know, 
you have to know the answers, but you are then on this narrow path that someone is paving for you, constantly slapping you left and right if you step away and saying, no, go back in line. And we know, you know this has not actually even resonated with us. I think you, you even see like over the work, uh, workplaces who are incorporating wellness programming and stuff like that. You see this rise in general of yoga, meditation, different kinds of mindfulness practices. And what they all seem to point to is that generally speaking, people are beginning to wake up to this ability to go inside, listen, internal, call it whatever you will. And that there's something intrinsically valuable there that we've been denying ourselves of. So when we do go on this journey, I mean, I've spent years in India and done all these 10-day silent meditations. And I mean, I remember going into my first 10-day silent meditation terrified. I didn't know how I was going to come out the other side and mm. couldn't talk and I love talking and all these things. But only once I was in three, four, five days could I actually start to listen. Yeah. And suddenly, uh, you know, this is well, well documented kind of phenomenon where suddenly you have these accesses to deep understandings of things at a very intuitive level that you could not have gotten from reading stacks of books on. And yeah. that's something that people in general are starting to really dap, get into and at different levels. And boy, if you're a leader, you're going to want to start to harness people's desire to want to continue to cultivate, develop that. And, and, I really do think that the future of work looks like workplaces also being self-development centers or having Absolutely. budgets for people to go off and, and do these various things. I know companies out there who are already doing it and reap huge benefits, have huge amounts of loyalty um, and, and have company cultures that thrive because people's lives are in their work. Even if you go through history and just look at some of the, you know, biggest scientific, you know, achievements we have had, and all the stories are about people taking that space, that time, you know, Newton's story, he was under the tree, the apple fell, he wasn't busy working 17 hours a day, not conscious, right? <laughs> I've watched the latest, you know, Bill Gates documentary, he's now taking a week away from his family, you know, out in the woods to just be to, you know, reconnect with his thoughts, to start to think about where does he want to take, you know, his foundation further. So we need those spaces, you know, as petrified as we are sometimes, so being in silence, being just by mm -hmm. ourselves, you know, we are, especially now, days, you know, craving constant distraction, whether it's Netflix or your iPhone or your meeting, we're using that as excuse not to be with ourselves because yeah. you know what? It's petrifying looking deep inside, you know, facing some of the things that you haven't healed before. I remember when I started the journey, oh my God, so much of the things that came up were things that I ignored for years, you know, and all of a sudden you cannot ignore them anymore because there is no excuse, you know, there is no full-time job to go every day, you know, kids are older at school, and all of a sudden you have this time during the day and you don't know what to do with it, Right. And, you know, if you're brave enough, you go on the journey and you rediscover a lot of things about yourself that you don't necessarily like and that, you know, you are aware of now and you can work on to improve. And I think you mentioned something really important, which is our listening skill. 
right? Listening to ourselves, but then extending that to others. You know, how many times you're in a meeting and people just waiting for someone to finish talking so they can say something. There is no dialogue because there is no deeper listening. Mm. Even if we are listening, we are thinking of our argument in our head. How are we going to contradict what they're saying? We are not in a deep listening mode where we are actually trying to, you know, connect emotionally to what they're saying to realize where they're coming from where you know at the end of the meeting after we have just listened we say you know what let me reflect back on that let me sleep on it let me come back to you tomorrow this urgency that we need to be perfect that we need to think on our feet i mean we even say think on your feet right to respond immediately right like where is the rush what's wrong with actually going inside and you know processing what you have heard seeing first what triggers what they said cultivated in you then going beyond those triggers because only then you can come up with an answer to the question that was posed well, I mean, very I mean, often respond from that trigger of you say something that triggers a reaction in me that's based on my conditioning i respond from that place and of course the argument starts and we are lost. I mean, yeah. every marriage ended like that, right? <laughs> or, so. or even in your job, it goes that way and then you just Absolutely. bury it, continue to collect a paycheck, but you've already killed yourself off and you're not going to be, yeah. and you're never going to be working. And often, and often you go in a meeting knowing, right? Just think about this whole, you know, division that we have in businesses between technology, digital, and the traditional business. I mean, they're at war already. And so every meeting starts already you distrusting the person you're going to meet. There is zero trust. And so if, you're, if that's your starting point, I, I guarantee you, you're not in a listening mode. You know, I had a lot of success at Pearson because I would go and I would listen. Mm. And instead of selling them what I'm trying to do with this innovation and transformation, I would ask them, what are your problems? Tell me about what's not working for you, for your team. How can I help you? that's how you open the door this is how the dialogue starts the conversation often they would say you're the only person you trust oh of course that's not good either because then you <laughs> create this culture in which the whole organization is dependent on you and that right. cannot fail but you have to start a dialogue it cannot be just about you and your needs and your triggers and your emotions it has to be you cultivating those deep listening skills and you can only do that if you can sit still with yourself and have that inner dialogue and start to listen to yourself and start to distinguish what's fear talking and what's really me. Well, you know, again, you go right back to the foundational things of Eastern philosophy, the Buddha, yeah. when you talk about the ego, well, what is the ego? Mm -hmm. It's this, what we identify by. And for a long yeah. time, and especially in our Western, more material culture, we identify by our status. We identify by our money, by our, mm -hmm. uh, job position or who I am or me needing to get the deal or me needing to be the smart one in the room. And when you go on that path, however you do that path, you're ultimately learning what's an illusion and what's real. And again, collectively right now, we've been granted one of the biggest opportunities we'll probably ever have where aggregately we are now all forced to confront that most of the things we identified by could go away overnight. Yeah. And so suddenly, now, does that leave people something to replace that with? That might be the hard part. But we've now just disproven that like, wow, 
apparently my status or my outfits or whatever isn't enough to sustain me as I work from home. Well, that process of deconditioning or destructing your ego is the process. And what's left is space to be with yourself, to be with people, to listen. And boy, you know, flattery to you, but you know, that must've been really hard for those employees to think they only got one person in their organization to who they can even open up to and start to give real feedback to. But imagine a workplace where that was common. Well, you'd have no problem picking up and trying to institute a new plan or talk things out and figure out a new idea and pivot. I mean, it would just be unrecognizable. Yeah. And, you know, what you just mentioned, you know, we all shop with all these different personas every day. You know, this is not, you know, a few times a year a persona shows up. Every single day, you play 5, 10, 15, 20 personas of yourself. You know, you're a mother, you are executive, you're an innovator, you're a cook, you identify with your inner child, you identify with someone else. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, you know. And if you can name them, and I've been doing that now for a while, you laugh at the end of the day. You, you say to yourself, oh, my God, only 15 of you show up today. That's a good day. <laughs> but you stop to take yourself so seriously. You stop right. to identify with just one version of yourself, thinking this is my key identity. If that identity blows up, oh, my God. Right? And I think this is really important. And to create that space in which we don't have to replace the identity we have lost with something else immediately. I think that's also quite a risky thing. And I think I was probably doing that at the beginning of my spiritual journey in terms of, you know, finding security somewhere else. So if I'm now on the spiritual journey, oh my God, that's quite a nice version of myself. I'm liking this Sonia much better than the one that suffered from burnout and wasn't there for her kids. So I'll identify with this until that identity starts to crumble as well. And you're finally faced with nothing and you're comfortable with that. And you're sitting in that space of nothing and you see, you know, sometimes you wait for months and nothing comes up and it's unnerving. You know, you often go to, you know, even spiritual workshops or talks and people say, I've been on a journey for many, many years. I still don't know what my purpose is. And then not once did I hear a guru say, oh, that's a big problem. They usually say, congratulations. That's a good sign, right? But we haven't been conditioned to stay in a, you know, that level of uncertainty for a long time and not know something. We have been preconditioned to know, to execute, to go, 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 do, do, do. And so just being, oh my God, is it petrifying or what? Or especially to even just be able to be with like, you know, uh, look, in real terms, leaders are under some duress to people want answers. So there's obviously a real obligation to provide. But just to be able to say, I don't know, let's look. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the things we're dealing with and see if we can find some solutions where we could, maybe we could kill three birds with one stone. Maybe there's a way to deliver on multiple things simultaneously if we look at this right. I know right now I'm dealing with X, Y, and Z. What are you guys dealing with? Okay, well, let's take a fresh look at this. Maybe there's a new way. I mean, just yeah. to even create that space to encourage that kind of inquiry for the average employee would be remarkable. Yeah. And I think we had some really amazing, you know, leaders step up in the last couple of months. And we had some good examples in government, in corporate world, where leaders have shown that level of humility, of empathy, of vulnerability, and had conversations with employees where they're 
talking openly about, you know, we don't have the answers. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know whether everyone is going to stay in the organization, but we are going to do right by you guys, right? We're going to do what's right. We are not going to bullshit anyone. We're going to tell you as it is. We're going to share data. I mean, I've been listening to your Governor Cuomo's briefings every day from London for the plain reason that he's telling the, you know, the truth as he sees it. He speaks from his place of integrity. He doesn't promise, you know, rainbows at the end of the day. You know, he's been very tough, if you want, in some of his prognosis. I know people, not everyone is happy with what he's doing, but there is no bullshit. There is zero bullshit. I know that I can trust what he's saying because he's taking accountability. You know, there was one tweet that I shared with everyone, which is basically saying, if you're not happy with what's happening, don't blame anyone else, blame me. I mean, how many times have you heard the lawyer, uh, sorry, the leader say something like that? Blame me? Oh my God, did we not go to school where we have learned to blame everyone else but us? So this is what, how we shift the paradigm to taking responsibility, yeah. taking accountability. Being a leader is not an easy thing, but everyone can be a leader in this situation. It just means leading by example, working from a place of integrity, whether you're a 15-year-old like Greta, or you're a 50-year-old politician or president, whatever. Work from a place of integrity. You don't have to have the answer. Actually, people will respect you more in this situation if you say, I don't know. Well, I can tell you personally, I, I personally, being in New York where you know the, the threat is very real, I can't tell you how much peace of mind I have with our leadership. And, and it, yeah. I can authentically say it comes across as, hey, there's a lot of things we don't know, but here's the general direction and vision that we're moving. This, this, is what, this is what you can expect over time. We can't tell you the timelines. What we're asking for is your flexibility and your patience and your willingness and thank you. And boy, I mean, if you're a leader in a company right now, I don't know if you could do much better than that. But boy, I can tell you as somebody who's even uh, has to be, worry about my even physical health and all that stuff, there's a huge peace of mind. There's a huge willingness and and my experience here is people have been willing to be so responsible and, and um, willing to come together in a way that is rare, I think. And, and I attribute it to that exact yeah. kind of leadership. Absolutely. You know, just got me thinking as we speak that this is a huge shift from being a child to becoming an adult. You know, we had this wrong definition of what being an adult means. You know, it means going to school, getting married, having kids, getting a certain position, buying a house. Those were all some of the milestones that, mm -hmm. you know, previous generation, you know, really kind of us to believe in. I must be a grown up. I have a mortgage and I got married and I have two kids, you know, box that. But that doesn't mean that you have actually grown up as a person, that you have, you know, matured emotionally, that you know how to deal with situation. You know, if you are in your 50s or 60s and you can't have a conversation and you cannot be challenged, right? If you're going to avoid having unpleasant conversation, that's not a sign of maturity in any sense of the word. And I know a lot of leaders who avoid having conversations. I know a lot of people in my personal life who are not in my personal life anymore for that reason, because you could not have a conversation. They would avoid it at any cost. They wouldn't get real. They wouldn't share how they feel. And this is not an adult to adult relationship. And so we are having the shift now from, as you said previously, command and control leadership, where we are being treated as kids really, 
someone, mom, dad, boss is telling us what to do. Someone is micromanaging every day. Someone is telling us we need to work between nine and six. We need to sit in a cubicle. We need to behave in a certain way to this new leadership where you're being treated as an adult and the accountabilities then, you know, if you're empowered, that means you have also accountability for how you feel. Very different type of leadership where you're saying, you know, these are the boundaries of what we as organization have agreed that we are going to work within. These are values. This is our purpose. But, and this is what, you know, the direction of travel is. This is our strategy. How you do your job is up to you. When you work is up to you. Whether you work from home or you work in the office is up to you. As long as we work together to collectively achieve our results, you do your job any way you want. But be accountable for showing up as an adult. Yeah. And I think the more we see leaders emerge and treat us as adults, the more we are going to show up as adults and have that adult-to-adult conversation. So right now, people are right to challenge, even leaders like Como, because that's what adults do. We ask difficult questions, and we expect our leaders to have maturity to respond to that in an adult way, not to blame someone on Twitter, not to send, you know, and you know who I'm talking not about to now. Not any names. Yeah, exactly. But to treat us as adults. This is a tough situation we are facing. Cuomo is saying, basically, I think you're adults. I think you can take it. So I'm going to say it as it is. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to promise you something that's not achievable. I'm not going to tell you I have a solution because I don't but I'm going to tell you the facts. You do with those facts whatever you need to do with them because you're an adult. You process them. You come back with questions. Let's have a dialogue. You know, I emailed my son's school last week to challenge them and say, okay, what have you learned? I'm not going to wait for September for you to tell me what the school is going to be like. I'm a parent. I'm paying fees. I want to have a dialogue. Treat me as an adult. Well, in and your, in, that's a very different conversation altogether then. And you can imagine how, so say Cuomo was your CEO of a company. Yeah. How even in a period of huge disruption like that, where maybe even people are going to be furloughed or some people let go, that sets the tone for the kind of workers and the kind of employees and the kind of leadership that you're about. So that kind of leadership attracts more people who are like, oh, Absolutely. great. I've got, I've got a competent leader who has those values. Great. I, that calls me to to be that kind of person too. Whereas yes. these companies where, you know, you talk about a place that looks at it in terms of just, oh, we got to slash 10% because they're looking at mm -hmm. the spreadsheets and those 10% of people get fired and they don't know why they got fired or, the, or, or even just let go, but that they were left as being completely dispensable. And, oh, even just the internal havoc that you're going to wreak on your own employees that are still there. In the, in the culture of panic and fear and, and individualism when that is not done in an equitable, transparent, thoughtful, humane way. I mean, you're going to, good luck recovering your company culture from that. Yeah. And that, you know, we talk a lot about millennials and how millennials are now stepping up and they don't want to work for companies in which they're not treated in a humane way where the purpose is unclear. But I think maybe at a lesser scale, that was true for my generation as well. If you have ever worked in corporate, if you've ever been through any of the reorganization attempts or you know, transformation attempts, you know that your best talent leaves immediately, right? 
And if you do three or four of those in five or six years, you lose all your talent. What stay, who stays in the organization are people who are scared. People who think they cannot find a better job somewhere else. People who follow the rules. So right. this whole process of reorganizing and cutting 10% and not trusting people is bleeding talent. Not a single CEO can afford to do that. And this is the huge shift that we need to really address as well. Do you really want your workforce to be full of obedient people who are just following the rules? Then I understand why you feel you need to micromanage because those people cannot think for themselves. They're just sitting at the desk <laughs> waiting for you to send another memo telling them what to do. I've met a lot of those leaders who tell me, well, if I let them do whatever they think they, you know, make decisions or whatever, what am I going to do? I mean, that's a wrong question. You have hired some amazingly smart people, right? You have paid them fortune to work for you. Then trust them to do their job properly. You know, I think Steve Jobs has a great quote about that. Otherwise, what's the point of having those smart people in the organization? You hire smart people to tell you what to do, not yeah. the other way around. You and cannot be in everything and we don't really want leaders who are experts we want people leaders who are nurturing the right kind of culture who are leading by example like you know governor Cuomo is doing at the moment who are really putting themselves out there who are empathetic vulnerable data-driven flexible and adaptable that's what the world needs right now people who can dream outside of what the world has told them is possible that's that's where we are in this point of evolution. We are going to pause this conversation because we kept talking and it got into a really interesting conversation about ways forward for leaders and companies in this time of disruption. So we hope you'll join us in the second part. And until then, have a great day. If you'd like to learn more about our workshops or consulting and innovation strategy services, please visit us at evolutionofinnovation.com or email us at hello at evolutionofinnovation.com.